Hey, listeners, thank you for tuning in again to another episode of the Whiskering Podcast. This may be episode 100. We are right around that number, including bonus episodes that have come out. Thank you so much for listening for all this time. I cannot tell you how much it means to me. So thank you. A couple of quick updates, and then we'll jump right into the episode. First off, we have now picked our two barrels of Jack Daniels Barrel Proof Rye. I was down in Nashville in June, picked two barrels that were completely different from each other, but both just knocked our socks off. So those are going to be going live sometime in the early fall. I will keep you up to date on that. Number two, we have multiple other barrel picks coming. The first one that's probably going to come out is going to be a barrel rye finished in Armagnac casks. This was chosen in partnership with Perry over at This Is My Bourbon Podcast. So you co-listeners are really going to love that. And we are brainstorming some sticker ideas right now that is going to make it even more attractive for your shelf. Hopefully you'll drink it, but it'll be good for the shelf too. Another barrel pick coming out, Spirits of French Lick, is getting chosen as we speak. And I'll keep you updated on that. Last thing, and then I'll let you go right into the episode, is... During my last update, I mentioned that there were four spots available at that top tier of $25 a month. At $25 a month on Patreon, you get not only first access to, well, everything, and access to everything that I put out, but you also get top tier priority for barrel picks when they come out. You also get the opportunity to join me on a barrel pick. Already, we've had members of that tier down with me in Nashville for the Jack Daniels pick, helping out in the Spirits of French Lick pick, and also given some input on the barrel pick. So every pick from now and going forward is going to have a Patreon member, at least one from that tier, on the pick with us. As of today, there is only one spot remaining in that $25 tier. So if you've been holding out, if you're pushing it off for any reason, I'd say jump on it because this plot is probably going to go quickly. With that, I'll say, you know, of course, if the $25 is out of your range right now, we still want you to be a supporter. We still want you to be involved. The next tier down, $5 a month, is going to get you that second access to all barrel picks. I can't speak for the $25 tier, but pretty sure there'll still be some barrels and bottles available for you at the $5 a month tier. That just really helps us grow, covers expenses, and keeps the podcast going with these awesome guests that we've got. All right, I have talked for almost three minutes. That is a ton of time. I am sorry for that. But with that, that's all the updates for this month. I'll keep you updated as they go along. Now, here's a new episode of the Whiskering Podcast. Hey, folks, welcome to a new episode of the Whiskering Podcast. I am thrilled to be joined by Mr. John Kubelik, who is from Dread River Distilling. And if you haven't heard of them, it's because we haven't gone to Alabama on this podcast just yet. You beat out Clyde Mays by probably a couple of weeks because you answer the emails first. And here we are. So he's here to talk about Dread River, about distilling in Alabama, what it, what you can and can't do there, and everything having to go into the history of Birmingham. So, John, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. And uh, yeah, never want to beat our neighbors, but uh, happy we snuck in before them. That's that's exciting. <laughs> I know you've got some friendly competition. You know, each state yeah. within state has their friendly competition between producers. But, you know, if you want to be first, you want to be first. It's OK. Um, so uh, let's just dive right in. So 
Alabama, again, this first time we're going there on this podcast, we're now in the second um, century of episodes. So there's not a lot of distilleries in Alabama, as far as I know. I didn't do a ton of research on it, but I know there's not a ton of them out there. Certainly not, not, not doing commercial not. level. Yeah. So uh, what kind of encapsulates the history of distilling in Alabama? Like, was there a distilling history before you guys came around? Yeah. So ironically, we've made this joke uh, numerous times and and I, I have no history in distilling prior to this business uh, for me. So all of this has been a learning experience for me uh, in Alabama and otherwise. But uh, pre-prohibition, there was actually quite a lot of distilling that happened in Alabama. Jack Daniels had a distillery in Birmingham. Uh, so I, as I'm sure most of your listeners know, we get the old number seven part of Jack Daniels now that is the one that everybody sees. But there was a time that there were several other numbers. And so I forget it was either number four or number five was distilled in Birmingham back before they kind of uh, consolidated into the one product that they make still today. So they spread out quite a lot. Uh, we have this kind of running joke in the distillery that we have the first, uh, we've now released the first bourbon distilled in Birmingham in over a hundred years. So pre-prohibition, we the joke part is we are the first legally distilled bourbon that has been uh, released in Birmingham in the last hundred years. I can't guarantee that there haven't been people out uh, in the mountains doing their own thing. Uh, and I've heard some stories about that and, and lots of people come by and say, you know, my grandfather, or I have my own thing. And we just kind of let that dog lay. So, um, but yeah, there, there is some history post prohibition. However, most of the laws or at least a lot of the laws that we still deal with on a daily basis are post-prohibition going back that far uh and, and we still deal with some of that so alabama is is lowercase conservative in a lot of ways and i think this is one of those things that until the last five or six years there had been nobody really looking to do anything like this and and i always attribute the the brewery scene really has exploded in birmingham um you know they had a, a free the hops movement yeah. years ago that kind of allow more and more uh, a high gravity beer because that wasn't even an option in Alabama. And because of the laws of Alabama, if you're a manufacturer, you are by definition a manufacturer of beer. So a brewer, a manufacturer of wine, you are a winery, you manufacture distilled spirits or distillery, any of those things, which is why we actually make a little bit of beer. We don't uh, sell it outside the distillery. But because those guys got there first and they really wanted to move that brewery movement forward, that kind of dragged the distillery industry, even though it didn't exist, along and kind of allowed what we ended up doing many years later uh, to flourish. Because without that, one, we wouldn't have had the, the proof of concept and known that that was really going to work. But also it would have been very difficult from a legislative standpoint to you know chop through all that red tape. So even though we don't necessarily do the same thing, the brewery industry in Birmingham really cleared the way for us. Uh, were there any, so there's Jack Daniels and um, I'll, I'll be honest. So this is, this episode's going to come out a few weeks after I was down in Tennessee to do a pick from them. Okay, and, cool. Um, I'll be honest. I, I went on the tour last time I was there and this time, and it's the first time that they mentioned Alabama, that it was, they had distilled in Birmingham when they couldn't in Lynchburg and 
as far as I know, no one has any bottles remaining. Like they haven't found any. But uh, besides that, are there any kind of pre-prohibition um, Alabama distillers who we might know the names of or anything like that? Or was it just not a huge? Was it, or uh, yeah, rather, was it all wiped out? As far as I know, there there weren't too many. You know, the Clyde May story, which you referenced before, that story exists pre-prohibition, although my knowledge of it, though limited, is that it wasn't in the full-scale production even the way that it is now. So I mm. think, uh, as is often the case with distillery uh, brands, the legend kind of takes on a, a life of its own. Sure. And so I think, and, and that's probably not, untrue of many places or many distilleries i think maybe it wasn't even thought of in the same way pre-prohibition because it was just kind of a omnipresent thing it was just something that people had and then when they tried to legislate it away then people started paying attention to where were these things located who was doing it who's doing it better who's doing it the right way um and so i'm you know i'm sure there were uh, a lot of distilleries but i think the uh the critical part to what happened in Alabama or, or Birmingham specifically is that because it was so draconian in terms of the, the laws that came in with prohibition, even when it was repealed, a lot of those things stayed. There are still to this day dry counties in Alabama. You can't buy alcohol in the county that I live uh, on Sunday. And so like it, there are definitely still and that's, you know, those are political things that, that last to today. But it's not as though as soon as prohibition ended, everything went back to, you know, boom times of the Great Gatsby. It, it's still been a pretty hard industry to to crack into. And being a control state, which Alabama still is one of the, the few that still are, that makes it challenging. I mean, we we face challenges. And I think uh, I my business partner, and I may have been somewhat naive when we started this whole thing to to thinking that, you know, we'll. Nobody has started this business in Alabama because they never thought of it. Like it, it wasn't so much that it was that there are there's some uphill battle that we've had to fight uh, to do this in Alabama. But that makes the reward all the are the all the more sweet because I think we really have accomplished something. We really feel like we've done something. We didn't just copy what some other people were doing with a slightly different brand. We really tried to do something special in a place that didn't have this before. So, and there are a few you mentioned. There are a few other distilleries in Alabama now. We are are definitely the largest from a production capacity standpoint, as well as a product diversification standpoint. We kind of run the gamut. Um, but I think that's that is also sort of indicative of a pre-prohibition story. There were some smaller people doing this, but we didn't have a, you know, what what would later become Jack Daniels or uh, Maker's Mark or things like that. I, I don't think Alabama has a, a history like that. Fair enough. And so with that, all in mind and, and bearing in mind, you said you might've been a little naive to do it in Alabama, <laughs> uh, but you've made it work. So, uh, so why Alabama in the first place and why Birmingham yeah. specifically too? Good question. Um, so I went to high school in Birmingham, so that's partially that reason for me. Although, uh, after college, I went to Auburn university, played football there and I worked in the film industry for a while. So I was totally not a part of, uh, the Birmingham culture, Alabama culture. I, I moved away. Um, but my parents stayed in Birmingham. And so that was always uh, where I came back for Thanksgiving, Christmas, holidays, things like that. And so as I traveled back, I was actually living in New York at the time. And I, I traveled back to Birmingham and I would see, you know, this brewery would pop up or this bar would pop up or they moved the 
minor league baseball stadium downtown, which I remember thinking at the time was crazy. Why would they do that? Nobody's ever going to go down there. I knew more about Manhattan when I was in high school than I knew about downtown Birmingham. It was just that's not where people went, uh, at least at the time. And then slowly over time, uh, more there's always an industry down there, banking, finance was down there. There's a medical community down there. But then it really became a more uh, interactive, more active uh, community, I guess, uh, downtown area, the central business district. And so seeing that, I started to see like, hey, this is a cool bar. It's not a cool bar for Birmingham. You didn't have that that kind of qualifier anymore where this was cool for you know, okay, yeah, it's Birmingham. It was like, this is a cool place. This is a great restaurant. And the restaurant industry in Birmingham has been good forever. Since Frank Stitt opened his several restaurants, he has created a a tree in Birmingham of fine dining restaurants that are, I mean, I would I would question anybody to find a, a better concentration of restaurants in a town five times bigger than Birmingham. I mean, there are certainly places that have, you know, your New York's and your Los Angeles, Chicago, but from a, a size standpoint, Birmingham much far outkicks its you know coverage in terms of the hospitality restaurant industry. And so we knew that the people were there. We knew that there was a, a palette for some of this. And so seeing the brewery scene really grow up, the cocktail craft cocktail culture uh, alongside the restaurant industry, you know, 10 years ago, if you would have said, can you get somebody to pay $12 for a cocktail in downtown Birmingham? I mean, I would have laughed at you that like, there were just wasn't a, there wasn't a, a market for that. And then here we are, you know, we, we are a part of that now, not only uh, do we do it, but a lot of places do it. And it's been very successful that, that entire industry. So I think again, we saw what was happening. There was something happening uh, that we wanted to be a part of and that we realized you know, the brewery thing has happened. The cocktail bar culture is growing up. The restaurant scene has been here. What can we do that's a little different? What can we add to this culture? And many of the places that I had been to that I like traveling to, Denver had a great influence on me. Um, you saw that brewery culture happen first, and then it was followed by the distillery culture. So for me, it was white space. Uh, I always was interested in entrepreneurship. This was always kind of a, a type of business that I wanted to get into. The brand is more what I have been involved with uh, passionately as far as the distillery is concerned. Uh, my business partner is a, a chemical engineer by degree. So that's where he uh, his brain kind of goes to the more scientific side of this. And so I think we've been a good yin and yang as far as that goes. And we met as a result of my playing football in college. He is an orthopedic surgeon. And so I joke that if you play football for long enough, you get to know orthopedic surgeons well. And I certainly have. Uh, and so that kind of started our friendship. And then it, after many years had gone by, we kind of had similar uh, tastes and, and aspirations. And that's what led us to, to doing this. And I, I do have to mention, so that, that business partner, Jeff, uh, has, <laughs> I had a, a thought that if he were to come on, I would have to ask him a question about that because I'm a huge baseball fan. Oh, nice. So, you know, Andrew's sports medicine has, uh, it, it's all your favorite players <laughs> yeah let, let's say that it's uh it's definitely had an impact on him that's for sure <laughs> yeah i mean honestly sometimes it's it has fixed more than not it, they're all successful surgeries it's it's about the players but i'm also yeah. a mets fan so we've had more than our share um uh, so <laughs> um <clears throat> pardon me i'll cut that my can't get i have a cough i can't get rid of yeah um <clears throat> anyway 
So you mentioned there are pretty draconian distilling laws in Alabama. And uh, when when were you able to, or when when was anyone really able to start distilling? As you mentioned that you had the beer movement grow up, but if, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but as we've seen in a couple of states, like you got beer, that was okay, then wine was okay, but distilleries and spirits sometimes take that extra yeah. step, you know? Sure. Well, I think part of that, at least, uh, I don't know what disincentivized people prior to us, you know, to, to beat us to this. And we certainly weren't the first. I mean, even pro- post-prohibition, uh, John Emerald and Opelika had been open for, for quite a while before we had been. Um, there are, are several other small distilleries that had been doing this, but I think it was the, the commercial scale that one, uh, just the the financial input to that is is significant to to build a distillery at at a scale of hours uh costs a lot of money i mean that's just that's the way it goes but also i think uh partially it was alabama has the fourth highest excise tax in the country and so i think uh from anybody who had done the numbers or the diligence on this in a very large way, you look at the bigger, uh, you know, distillery brands and where would they expand or try to open different locations. Um, they would look at that and say, that's not hospitable to, you know, a, a national brand growth. Uh, and so that certainly I think was a intimidating factor for people who may be looking to do this and didn't necessarily care about Birmingham, but we're saying, where can we find an opportunity in a growing community? And, you know, build this business that we want to build because I've heard that across the country. I was lucky to travel to many distilleries and and met those people who said, "Hey, I've you know made some money working in finance or whatever, and I hated it, so I want to do this now." And I chose this place because of whatever. But this is the business I was going to start no matter what. Uh, you know, Alabama wasn't on that list of places because it would be harder for them to you know find success. So. I think we kind of made a sacrifice in that regard because we wanted to do this in Birmingham more than anything else that was a factor. And we hoped that with as much positive change that we had seen, even to when we were getting started, that we could, you know, maybe continue some of that change and say, now that there are people here asking for this, now that we want to change the way things have been done previously, uh, you know, we're knocking on the door, maybe they'll be responsive. And to be honest, they have, uh, the, the, as I mentioned, Alabama is a control state, so we have the ABC. They're the kind of governing body, and I mean they're they're good to us. They try to be as helpful as they can. Uh, sometimes it's within the confines of the law, and and things just can't work. And so then we talk about you know how to change those things. Uh, and sometimes it's you know nobody's asked that question before, and we have to figure that out. And so uh, we kind of it's a little bit of a hand in glove situation where we're figuring out together. So I'm going to jump, jump a question for a second, which is uh, your national tour of distilleries. I want to talk about okay. that in a second. But um, before I do, you mentioned that opening a distillery, there's a pretty big financial um, hurdle or barrier to entry. And as far as I've kind of seen as I keep doing these interviews, I've kind of identified three paths that a new distillery can take. Uh, first one is you from one reason or another, you have financial backing so that you can just sit on the liquid until it's ready. You know, if you've got the money in the bank, in the bank, whatever it may be, but that's the situation. The second one is you uh, produce spirit that will become whiskey 
but you also produce uh, gin, clear spirits, other faster maturing products, alcoholic and non-alcoholic. Uh, it's kind of keep things running, keep the lights on in the meantime. And then the third one is that you have, you create a location that is a destination. Sometimes it's a restaurant or bar on site or both that drives people in and it creates excitement about this product that is to come uh, while again, kind of like option two, keeping the lights on in the meantime. And from what I've kind of seen of Dread River, it seems like you have a mix of two and three. They mix of the creating the clear spirits and the faster aging, but also creating a destination spot for people to go to. So how did that business plan kind of come about? Yeah, that's right. Um, great observation. And yes, we do. Uh, the financial component of all of those things is sort of the most significant because you're right, no matter two or three, you still have to be doing one, you know, that's the that's the ultimate goal here. So how do you pay for that? And as I mentioned, in, in Alabama, not only do you have to, uh, you are a brewery or a winery, uh, you're a distillery, but that means you can't serve at a, any location, even if you didn't have a, a location, if you were just giving the tour and tasting, you can't have anything other than your products. So we, I think that's why a lot of other people hadn't really gone down your third path because you couldn't serve Jack Daniels, you couldn't serve Tito's, you couldn't serve beer. Budweiser, you know, because you're not allowed to have any of those things uh, because of the, the three tier system in Alabama. So rather than making that a hindrance, and I came from a experiential marketing background, live event production, and I lived in New York, as I mentioned. And so that kind of, hey, this culture is shifting in Birmingham. Do you think maybe it's time to bring a, a new new blood venue type of thing into this whole atmosphere? It's not the brewery. It's not... Um, sit outside at the picnic table with your dog and play cornhole, which is fine. I mean, there, but, but we have that, you know, there, there's a lot of those, there's a lot of places where you can do that. So what is the next evolution of this distilling by, by processes, uh, you know, more refined, there's more detail to it. It's a higher proof spirit. So like, how can we take that concept of what we're doing and kind of make it that next uh, iteration with, with Birmingham. So that's where that front of the house space comes from. And we took the limitation of saying, you know, we can't have any of these other spirits. You can't have vermouth, you can't have Campari or Aperol or Chartreuse or whatever. And we made it into a bar and restaurant. And so we squeeze all our juices fresh. We make excellent cocktails, but we do it all back in our kitchen. So, and we need, uh, you know, espresso martinis had their moment there for a while, or maybe we still are in that moment. I'm not sure. I don't, I don't drink them, but um, you know, we me, had me neither, but they're still very much around. Sorry. Continue. <laughs> yeah. I have a feeling. Yeah. I feel like they haven't gone anywhere for me. They yeah. never really caught on. Um, but you know, we'll, we'll reverse engineer, you know, our own version of Kahlua, you know, a coffee liqueur. We'll do our own things like that. We have 190 and we've got all the kitchen stuff. So we just have to kind of figure out how to do that. And then that gives us the opportunity to make, you know, whatever we want. Um, it's a lot harder, but it also gives us the way to, again, as I view that space, it's brand Mecca. So when you come here, you get that experience. You're supposed to understand, you know, what the brand is and what we represent, who we are. You're supposed to be able to try the products and understand the quality of, that goes into those. And the best way that we can express that is by letting you try them, whether that's in the tasting on the tour, whether that's in a cocktail at the bar. And so that's the purpose of this. And, and it's to give you the the best possible uh, expression of our products and, and our brand 
is that place. So wherever else we go and whatever events we may be a part of, when you come there, you're supposed to really get the indoctrination into the culture. And so having to do everything from, you know, very beginning to end is definitely harder. You know, there's no question about that. And and I would even add maybe to your, and I'm sure you you left this out on purpose, but we also learned very very early in this process that maybe there there are a couple things before even your three points that you laid out. Um, you know, not every distillery has a still. You know, not every distillery puts the the white dog in the barrels and waits for a long time. Um, you know, or I guess I should say, not every brand does that. And so that was very important to us too. We wanted to make sure that we were producing these products. We weren't buying them all from MGP and and going through that process and and putting a, a brand on it, which if I'm being totally honest, when we started, that was like a, you know, a dirty little secret. And people were looking at the back of bottles and saying, you know, is this from Indiana? You know, where'd you, where's this from? That just in the, not for us, we, we didn't exist yet, but like, that was the culture. Mm-hmm. I feel like, and maybe you disagree, but I feel like now it's like, that is so pervasive. People mm-hmm. are just kind of like, yeah, I mean, we've resigned ourselves to the fact that, you know, everybody does that to some degree. And so that's been a, a kind of a, seismic shift in the consciousness in this business because i didn't realize that that's you know what people were thinking uh up up to this point so yeah we're we're still grain to glass which makes everything a lot harder a lot more complicated um but we're proud of that so yeah i was was thinking about the timeline as you said that you know you're officially starting in 17 yes but you know obviously you would have been thinking about it beforehand and looking into the industry and all of that and yeah, that would have been about the time when people would have looked at like, um, for example, Templeton or some or other brands that got caught sourcing and not telling. Sure. Basically. And um, I should say for what it's worth, um, I, I actually love the Templeton tenure now, but they're also very transparent now that it's from Indiana. So it, yeah, so that that makes sense that it, it was kind of the dirty little secret around that time. Now, as you say, I mean, you see Indiana on the back, you know, it's MGP. You see Tennessee on the back. Now you have to think about whether it's yeah. Dickel or Tennessee Distilling Group. But, you right. know, options are, are few and far between. Um, There's one other part that I wanted to ask you about there, which. Uh, oh, it was that in creating your own having to create all of your own materials and, and additional cocktail components, let's say, and, and other products. Uh, you're, you're reminding me of a conversation I had a few dozen episodes ago now with Driftless Glen mm-hmm. in uh, Wisconsin, and they have to do the same thing there. They can, they, I think they have somewhat less restrictive laws on distilling overall, but you've, if you're going to be a cocktail, if you're going to be a distiller, you have to distill or create everything on site. So they have to make their own, like is it the Aperol type things that, Right. vermouths all of that uh and uh you know as such did that kind of well, let me rephrase this question did the cocktail part become part of the culture organically or did you kind of have to start with that as part of the culture that you wanted to create and go in so kind of at what point where yeah. you decide to make the rest of the things it's a little bit of both um, because I feel like we knew going into this that 
if we were going to go down the event space route, if that was part of what our business plan was going to be, part of our revenue generating strategy was to have events at the distillery. And, and to be honest, and I know we might talk about this in a minute, but I traveled to quite a few places. And, and one of my questions to the distilleries that I, and, and it could not have uh, planned for a more, more collegial industry. I mean, the people that I met in this industry, I would you know email out of the blue. They don't know me. And I'm like, hey, man, I'm coming to Denver and I would love to check out your place. I'm starting a distillery. And to a man, it was like, go, oh, come by anytime. Happy to show you around. Spend two hours, you know, talking through the process. And at many of those trips, I would, you know, ask my series of questions, one of which was always, you know, what do you know now that you wish you would have known then? Or what, what would you have done differently had you, you know, got had this two years of experience before you started? And obviously got a lot of answers to that question. But one that came up many, many times was I wish I would have been able to anticipate our need for event space because people just like it here. They just think it's cool. They want to come and have their birthday party or their wedding reception. We've had numerous actual wedding ceremonies at the distillery, which I was I have consistently been surprised by. Um, and so that was something that we already wanted to do. I wasn't front loading that question. I was just kind of curious and I got that information back. And so I was like, okay, we we're on the right track here with this. Um, so we knew we wanted to have the space. And then at the beginning, I won't lie, we viewed all of that uh, restriction as a restriction, as a limitation to say, you know, we hired an extremely talented mixologist at the beginning of this local guy. And I mean, he made people still ask about cocktails by name that he made back, you know, when we opened in 2019, because he's just uh, he was doing really incredible stuff. And about a week, 10 days or so before we opened, we had gotten some some bad information and were told you can use whatever you want. As long as you buy it from the ABC store, you can use anything, all the stuff, you know, that uh, they have. So he makes this hundred cocktails. I'm not exactly it was incredible. He worked on it for months and then they're going through the kind of final check process. And they're like, wait, no, you guys can't use alcohol that you don't manufacture, which we knew from before, but we asked and they told us that we could. And I mean, he had to scrap the entire cocktail thing like 10 days before we open and start over and had nothing other mm -hmm. than the few, because we didn't even have the full line of products that we have now, the few spirits that we had to work with. And he, you know, I don't think he slept for a while there, but still made some incredible cocktails that people still love. And it was kind of, I think at that point, when we realized like again pure entrepreneurship here when you say okay we have this curveball and there's nothing we can really do about it how are we going to make lemonade and so my phrase in this business because i like to do this personally is you know we turn lemons into lemoncello that's that's kind of what we do that's our our whole process and so um I think we always knew we wanted to do cocktails, but we've really kind of been more creative or more front loaded that now that we've said, look, this isn't necessarily a limitation. We know what our products taste like. We know what we want you to get out of them. And so if we craft you a cocktail that expresses this spirit in the best possible way. That's your best opportunity to try it and like it. And so we've taken that not only there on site at the distillery in the tasting room, but we'll do events now. We'll do, you know, cocktail syrups. We'll have things so that our business is very liquor to lips. That's kind of the, the key point of this. You have to let people try things. And we live in Alabama. It's the summertime. It's 90 degrees. And we go and do a tasting and, you know, it's uh, room temperature gin. You know, not everybody's going to love that. 
And so if we can do it in a way that lets you try it in a way that you are going to like, and, and you may, you may want to try 120 proof whiskey in August outside, but somebody next to you doesn't like it that way. So we try to give it to them in a way that they like too, so that no matter how you like to drink our products, we found a way that you do like to drink them. I mean, it makes sense. And it, it helps of course, that your, your space is a beautiful space. I mean, I've only seen the outside of it from just pictures and stalking on Google maps, but uh, you know, it's a beautiful Tuscan style building. looks like a, a villa. It's got everything you'd want in an event space, let alone a distillery. Uh, and being honest, when I, when I think about like in town distilleries around, around the country, really, I mean, unless the town kind of grew up around the distillery, in which case it's a very old distillery, right? Uh, most of them are, you know, converted garages or their industrial buildings, things like that. So more of a functional space than an event space. Uh, so, you know, they're, they're not going to hold weddings in certain distilleries that I've been in most distilleries that I've been in that aren't the big heritage guys. So, um, I mean, that being said, I do want to ask before I go to the, uh, who did you visit question, which is, let's say that you decided you really wanted to create a distillery. You wanted to do everything that you've now achieved, but the space available to you was more of the kind of, if you will, the converted garage or the industrial base, you know, would you have taken that in order to achieve the, let's say primary part of the dream? This month's impact spotlight is on White Heather and McNair's blended whiskeys and the tales of the two men who made these venerable brands what they are. The first is Billy Walker, a 2021 Icons of Whiskey Hall of Fame inductee and owner of the Glenallachy, another Impex brand and a recent podcast guest. Billy has over five decades of experience in the Scotch world. With White Heather unshow filtered blended whiskey, Billy returns to his roots. White Heather was relaunched in 2021 with a 21 year old blended Scotch, and is now joined by a 15 year old edition. Both feature 47% single malt in their blend and draw from top stocks in Isla, Speyside, and the Highlands. The 15-year-old is matured in American and Spanish oak casks for a beautiful blend of honey, malt, wispy smoke, and candied citrus. The 21-year-old is matured in American oak and sherry butts for 18 years before a final three years in PX and Oloroso punchins. This is plus time in medium toast and medium char Appalachian oak for a final burst of sweetness and complexity. The second story is of Harvey McNair. McNair was the essence of a Victorian Scotsman. He accomplished many trades and travels in his lifetime, and more than anything, he loved and championed the natural, unadulterated color of whiskey. Pure gold, as he called it. Pure gold was the foundation of the whiskey blends he created. Today's McNair unshow filtered blended whiskey, thanks to Billy Walker, honors Harvey's legacy, marrying peated malt, highland, Isla and Speyside with Glenallachy Spirit. This is a blend for the peat lovers. To find all of these whiskeys and any Impex product, visit a premium spirits retailer near you. You can also visit Impex at www.impexbev.com or email office at impexbev.com for those harder to find releases. The Whiskey Ring Podcast is proudly sponsored by Impex Beverages. Well, I don't want to get charged for not being legit 
our distillery is in a converted garage. So oh, fair enough. Uh, okay, there are fair two enough. two buildings. So you would not know this by the pictures, but basically uh, there are two buildings back to back. And the space that you're talking about that you've seen, the Tuscan style building, which is very unusual in Birmingham. It's, it's a beautiful building. I cannot tell you the number of times when we were renovating it, people would walk by and say, Oh, what are you guys doing here? I always wanted this to be my, you know, office or my whatever, whatever their dream for the space was. And I was like, well, I wanted it to be a distillery. So I hope you like that. Um, but the other side of the space where actually the distilling occurs was an automotive repair shop. That's funny of, of all the things I feel like you, I feel like you probably did your research and you're just trying to, you know, play that down. Like you didn't know that <laughs> of all the things that you could have just said what it was. <laughs> no, honest to God, I, I really, cause I, I'm thinking about, and maybe these are some of the places you visit. We'll, we'll get into that, but I'm thinking of like some of the ones in New York where mm -hmm. um, Kings County is not this, they have the Navy yard and they right. have a, a nicer brick, you know, old brick building from the 1800s. But um, you know, some of the other ones I like Van Brunt, um, New York distilling company does a great ride. You know, these are, they're producing great stuff, but they're in industrial sure. spaces. Uh, well, Kings I think in New uh, York, it, there's, yeah. I, and look, I lived in New York. I love New York. Uh, I consider it more, more home even than Birmingham, just cause it, it feels like me. Uh, but that's, I mean, you kind of have to play the hand you're dealt in a lot of ways. And, and New York is hard because there's not a lot of space, even the places that you're like, the Brooklyn Navy hard, like that's one of the only places that has big open space. You know, we used to film movies out there. I mean, and that's the, for the same reason. One, it's cool because you can do period movies back there, but also they've got space that nobody else has. Uh, Red Hook. I mean, I feel like that's Red Hook. When I lived in New York, Red Hook was like a pretty well-kept secret over there for artists and lofts and cool stuff going on. I feel like the secret's out now, but um, I feel like that's the kind of, unless you're in a place like that, like where are you going to open a distillery in manhattan i mean there's just there's not a it doesn't it doesn't work a like places that. are now doing that but it's yeah it's it's tough it's and it's so tough. i i think that we were lucky we looked at many different spaces going into this project and as anyone who has started a business maybe not anyone but anybody who's not lying will tell you that we got very familiar with the term scope creep um we got to be like scope sprinting at certain points because when we started the idea to your question, you know, what were we willing to sacrifice for that? We had a, you know, five, 7,000 square foot space in mind because we were starting a distillery. Uh, we are now in a 27,000 square foot building and we talk all the time about how we run out of space constantly. So the one thing that I, I would say about that we knew would be a limitation, no matter what space we found or what its previous occupant was, in a downtown CVB area, like you don't have the space to, you know, mill your own grain and put all the stuff. Like if you had a farm or something, like a lot of distilleries, Kentucky distilleries sometimes are. So that was going to be a restriction no matter what. We're going to have to get trucks in and out of there. We're going to have to drive people to a downtown area. It was going to be more landlocked. Um, so though, having said all of that, we didn't want to be such a destination that you had to, you know, take a weekend trip just to come see us, you know, 20 minutes outside of Birmingham. We knew that the action that we were going to get was here and we needed to be in the downtown area. And so what, what became the hardest part was finding a space that was big enough to do both of the things that we wanted to do, you know, and not have to sacrifice both of them. And, and I think we kind of, there was one other place that we were looking at um, and we, we 
chose our space because we felt that place was a better fit for a brewery, not ideal for a distillery. And so we chose the space that we're in and that other space is a brewery now. So go figure. Makes sense. He says, no, I, I I promise you, I really had not, I had done the research, but not that close to research on your intuition. is good. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Another one I was just thinking of that also speaks to a similar story that you had of like how much space you're going to need and all that is, um, Fort Hamilton, they're down in Brooklyn in Industry City. Mm-hmm. And it's, I mean, Industry City now, it's become kind of like Chelsea Market. And I know we're throwing mm-hmm. around some inside places here, but. Um, Who visit these places in New York? Yeah, cool. really do. Really do go visit. They are cool. Um, you'll spend a lot of money, but it's really cool. And uh, yeah. it's a it's a converted, like six buildings in a row that were all industrial. Some still kind of are, but now they have all shops on the first and second floor. And, um, you know, bazaars and toy shops and food, tons of food uh, and all that. And so Fort Hamilton has a space there. It's uh, run by Alex Clark. He was a big cocktail guy, big whiskey guy. Uh, and I remember going to do a story on them when they were first opening up, like they opened two weeks after I did the story. And, mm-hmm. you know, ever since then they've, they've grown, they've inserted a new still they've, been getting bigger barrels and all of that but um ultimately he actually was kind of saved by covid in a way because he i guess leased a space in the buildings and very and leased a space next door for a barrel room mm-hmm. for a place to mature and um as you can imagine all sorts of fire codes they had to go through to do that even in a building that was primarily made of concrete yeah. and wasn't going anywhere um but because of COVID, a lot of the businesses that were going to take those adjacent spaces, including at least one brewery, actually, did not mm-hmm. take those spaces and they became available. And he was able to say, all right, well, we're growing faster than we thought we were. Let's lease that space and we'll fill it up with barrels and all that. So it's a, it's a very real thing of you tend to outgrow your facility pretty quickly, especially if you start seeing success and growing. So um, it's... You know, mirror story, New York, Brooklyn, Birmingham. It's it all comes together. So a great catch twenty two in this industry. Yeah. The more successful you are, the more space you need. And and that I think that would be the, the biggest limiting factor in my estimation, not that I know of being in New York would be, you know, we're we're running out of barrel storage. Uh, we are out of barrel storage and we have, you know, a lot more space than we even thought we needed. I, I don't talk about getting upside down in uh, your bourbon costs at the per square foot cost of Brooklyn or anywhere in New York these days. But at the same time, your opportunities to to market your product to people and the, the bars and restaurants you can get in. And, and New York tends to be a pretty uh, loyal in terms of creative uh, support structure. So um, yeah, I admire what we did was not easy and working in a state that that is not necessarily amenable to things like this was was a huge challenge. But doing something like this, you know, in in uh, five boroughs is a, a whole different animal. So props to those guys. So that makes me think of a question that uh, I hadn't planned on asking, but kind of makes sense, which is. Look, I, I come from a bias of I'm around New York. There's, as you know, there's cocktail bars, there's bars, just period everywhere every restaurant has a cocktail menu and all of this so 
I don't know at all what the culture is like in in Birmingham and Alabama and more generally. But was you said earlier that there was an appetite for spirits. You saw it in the beer industry and you could kind of see it growing into the spirits industry. So mm-hmm. what was kind of a what was the point that kind of convinced you that you could not only have the distillery and create a distillery, but that there was truly an appetite? Like what what convinced you that that was true? Sure. Well, I think, again, not, I am the last person to draw similarities between Birmingham and New York, but um, not too long ago, um, and this was before before my cocktail time, but not too much before it, you know, the cocktail culture in at least in America, if not globally, was not the way it is now. I mean, mixology was not a job title. I mean, there, no one no one did that. And cocktails were one and ones or, you know, Tom Collins or whatever. It was not uh, on the forefront. There weren't entire places dedicated just just to this the way there are now. And I think that, you know, places like Death and Company in New York, uh, Honest to God, Pegu Bar, those places that really put the the cocktail focus at the forefront, if not the exclusivity of what they were doing, started a movement that now we just recognize as being, you know, offhand, everybody, cocktail menu, like you said, I mean, you can't, what, where, can I have your cocktail menu? It's just natural. You, of course you have a cocktail menu, you have to, and you have to have a person, if not multiple people to execute that cocktail menu on your staff. So Following that tradition, like New York was, we have the hospitality industry, we have the food industry, and I think those fine dining places were always making cocktails. I think that was a part of their culture. It was just, unless you were going to that place, you were going to a bar, you know, and you were getting a beer or you were getting a vodka soda or whiskey, ginger, whatever. Um, And like I said, not that long ago, people were were not paying for, uh, you know, an old fashioned probably feels a, right about the speed of where Birmingham is right now. Like it's a cocktail to be sure, but it's not really stretching its boundaries too much. And I'm not saying that the, the cocktail culture in Birmingham is that way, but I think the people have, have gotten to be where it's like, I know what cocktail I order when I go out and it's this, you know, um, and all of the bartenders, the mixologists, the, the venues are kind of dragging people along and saying like, okay, if you like that, let me try this. And there's a place in Birmingham, the Collins Bar, that is, at least as far as I am concerned, and, and I don't want to be disrespectful to all the bar restaurants, the, the restaurant bars that existed long before this, um, but Andrew Collins opened a bar, been quite a few years ago now, and it's all mixology. They don't have a cocktail menu, ironically, and it's, what do you like? And they have everything, and they have all the bitters and the tinctures and the aperitifs and all everything. And they say, you know, I like fruity, I like sweet, I like this, I like bitter, whatever. And they'll, you know, what do you, what spirit do you like? And they kind of put it together for you like that. And then no two cocktails are the same. Which, again, you're saying this like, yeah, I go to that place every weekend. But there wasn't one. There, there was not a place like that. There wasn't even a dedicated cocktail bar, let alone one that said, we don't have a menu. You just have to tell us what you like. And so I think, I don't know the origin of that, but that was one of those places that I would come back to. And I was like, this is a cool bar. I would hang out here. I'd go here in New York. You know, I I like this bar and they do a cool thing. And so I think those guys to a very small group of people at the beginning and then concentrically out from there kind of introduced people to cocktails don't have to be 
a gin and tonic. You know, that's not what we're talking about. And if you don't like that, I'll make you something else. And then it kind of helped people understand that I have to input some into this and maybe I don't understand. Maybe I don't really not like gin. I just don't like it in that format. Maybe gin something that I do like. I've just been doing it wrong, you know. And so I think that the education component, while maybe that wasn't really what they were planning to do, I think they they brought a lot of people along uh, a journey of kind of realizing cocktails are are cool. Hey, fair enough. I, I'll be honest. I've been... I had this conversation while I was down in Nashville, actually, that I don't really drink straight whiskey when I'm out anymore. Yeah, it's just not because most of the stuff that I want to drink I have at home or is otherwise too expensive. I mean, sure, yeah. We, we stopped at a bar that like had something I really really like. Like I would happily pay a bottle, like buy a bottle of. It's a hundred dollars a pour. I was like, I'm I'm good. I'm yeah, thank you. Justify. But no, no. But what I do when I go out, I usually get a cocktail. Yeah. Because I I'm just not someone who drinks cocktails enough at home that I've got all the ingredients. And it's gonna sound snobby, but the cocktails that I tend to like the most have a lot of ingredients. Sure. You know, I love a corpse survivor number two. That's my yeah. go-to right now. And that's got five or six things in it. Right. Even an old fashioned, like I don't have orange peel around me all the time. Sure. Yeah, right. you know, I might have the other stuff, but like, give me a break. I don't have the orange peel. Um, I had to order sugar cubes. A bottle of vermouth, or you know, whatever. Yeah, exactly. Like vermouth does. Yeah, it does go bad after a while. You know, it may take a few months, but that's how long it takes me to go through a cocktail. Yeah, it will go bad in my refrigerator. Exactly. So, I I have learned to kind of appreciate the cocktail culture in reverse because that's what I drink when I go out. Uh, But it's also exposed me to some really interesting. Uh, especially like house blends of things. And I would imagine coming down to Dread River and just looking at the cocktail menu and saying, all right, I like this. Let me try some of the stuff. And having it being your own ingredients is both cool for the consumer, but it must also be cool for you knowing that, like you said, you know exactly what every product tastes like. Sure. You know the profile. That's that's exactly the way. So I I mentioned Death and Company before, and that, that being the, you know, one of the godfathers of the cocktail culture, but one of my trips back to New York while Dread River was in its kind of creation, I, I borrowed, if not flat out stole a lot of inspiration from places that I loved in New York. So when we were building out the the way the front of the house space looks, uh, you know, oh, that was really, I love this element of this place or this place or this, but, you know, the Bowery Hotel, for example, is one of my favorite buildings in New York. Uh, it looks like it's been there since the 40s and it's been there since like 1998 or something uh which is so cool because they did such a great job of like creating this you know bob dylan stayed here back in the day and it was like they weren't even around but um really cool places that i would you know go take ideas from and one of those things i bought specifically bought the death and company cocktail book bible from there so i could give it a kind of as a gift and say like hey this is my like passing of the torch not so much to take the cocktails but understand the way these people think about cocktails you know they are taking spirits and and you know ancillary products and blending them together in a way that don't tell me that this is a limitation something that we can't do because they're turning this list of ingredients into this cocktail and you know it's a transformative alchemy and that's again part of our process that's our our symbol is the alchemical symbol for aquavitae water of life and so alchemy has always kind of been a uh, 
secondary thought process here, obviously fermentation, distillation, process of alchemy, but just that kind of turning something that used to be something else into something arguably more valuable, hopefully more valuable, um, is a cool concept to to our whole business. And so, again, faced with that, we we took this building that had been you know empty for ten years and we turned it into what it is now. We did something that people thought you know you couldn't do in Alabama, and we've turned it into what we've done. We had this limitation of not being able to you know make great cocktails, even though that's what we wanted to do. So we figured out a way to do it. So um, again, I'm not to, to the entrepreneurs listening to this. I'm not telling them anything they don't already know. That's just the way it goes. You got to be persistent when it comes to things like that. You're going to hit roadblocks. Um, and we hit a lot. We bumped our head a number of times. Um, but oftentimes we also found that people didn't know the answer to our question and we just had to keep moving forward. You know, so if, if we didn't get a yes or we got an I don't know, we said, well, here's here's how it works. We'll tell you. And they said, OK, well, that sounds good. Let's do it. So, uh, yeah, it's the, I guess that's that's the alchemy of being an entrepreneur. you got to turn a no into a yes. Yeah, fair enough. So uh, before we go too down a rabbit hole and I, I don't want to keep you all night because I have tons of questions, but uh, <laughs> let's jump into the. So depending on the outlet, and I listened to a couple of different ones and read a few different ones. So between when you were when you had the idea and you wanted to open a distillery and you went on this national tour to different distilleries, I've seen numbers between 30 and 50 distilleries that you visited. Uh, which ones were, do you think were kind of the most helpful or influential in getting to where you wanted to be? Man, I thought you were going to say I needed to rattle them all off. And I was like, oh, boy, here we go. <laughs> Um, like I said before, Denver was kind of my, it was definitely my first stop and I, I went there several times. And so there were a number of distilleries, I think laws, uh, which I don't know if you know those guys, but that was literally, I think the first distillery that I went to as a part of this process. And, and those guys were, were super cool. I went to Stranahan's, which is right down the street, Leopold brothers, obviously with those guys, uh, family Jones is in Denver. Those guys are super good to me. Uh, really, really cool. There's a, a couple of places out. Uh, there's a distillery in called marble distilling company in Carbondale, Colorado, where, uh, the husband and wife, um, have the distillery, but they also operate an inn as a part of it. So unlike our event space, they kind of have a little inn that, that they use to same for the same reasons we do. But they're very sustainable. They created this system where they uh, reclaim all of their water from their you know, mash process. Uh, obviously, they use the spent grain, they feed cattle and all that stuff. But they have a closed loop water system, which I just found fascinating. I tried to implement that in Birmingham, but for reasons we don't have to get into, uh, Alabama is not Colorado when it comes to sustainability opportunities. So um Spent some time there, went to uh, Woody Creek out there, Aspen, went to 10th Mountain, Breckenridge. So, I mean, I spent a lot of time uh, at distilleries in Colorado. Spent some time in California also. I, I was at um, Cutwater while they were still under construction randomly. I had gone to Ballast Point Brewery because I didn't really know if there were any other distilleries kind of in the neighborhood. And the guys were like, yeah, well, Cutwater. And they kind of explained the story. And sent me this guy's email. And uh, so, I, you know, like I do, I email this random person who I've never met. And he's like the the man over there. And he happened to be traveling. And he was like, here, I'll give you the number for this guy. And Walker, they showed me all around wearing the hard hat. They got their 
giant Vendome still that's brand new. I mean, nothing's even constructed. And so I don't, I don't know who these guys are. I've never heard Cutwater. That sounds cool. You know, now everybody knows who they are and all that they have accomplished and they, you know, own the canned cocktail game. And, uh, it was, it was just kind of cool, uh, you know, to be a part of that. And then probably my two biggest, uh, I don't want to say mentors cause we were never that close, but when I had a question, uh, I would reach out to Pat Heist and Shane Baker from wilderness trail. And I got to them through, I think I reached out to like Western Kentucky had a distillery program, um, as a part of their curriculum. And I got to a professor there and said, you know, Hey, what, what can we do to, you know, work together or looking for answers. And he gave me these guys because they had a company called firm solutions, which provides, you know, yeast and enzymes and things like that to distilleries. And so I'm like, well, okay, that sounds like it's important. Sure. And so he gives me these two guys information. And I mean, every time I'm just, again, hold email them. Hey guys, here's who I am. Here's what I'm trying to do. Uh, would love to be able to just link up and connect. And they were so gracious. And I mean, I would send them emails back and be like, hey, I'm having a problem. And it would be, you know, pretty complicated problem. And I'd say, I really don't know how to solve, you know, whatever it is. 24 hours max later, I'd get back a dissertation on the topic that I asked about. And I'm like, from one or the other of them, and I'm like, never met these guys. And they all know me. And they're like, giving me this just sage and, and top-notch advice and I, I really appreciated, you know, that's that they are sort of my, uh, and they're not the only ones, all these people that I have mentioned, that's the distilling industry for me. I, I staved off going to Louisville for, I mean, probably two or three years into this process, not for any reason other than like when I would send my blanket emails looking for people to, you know, help me, I didn't hear back from, you know, Buffalo Trace. I didn't hear back from Woodford Reserve, which and I don't. I'm not. Wasn't really expecting to. Those guys are huge. They they're not. They're not doing what I'm doing. It's a different, completely different game. And so, I did obviously go through that whole trail process uh, at a certain point and found it to be extremely informative, if not a little bit more sterile. I was accustomed to like having the cell phone number of the guy who's doing the distilling and going watching him work where as with those things, I'm taking the tour like everybody else. So it was a little bit of a different process, but um, when Marianne Eves was at Castle and Key, we spent a lot of time there one day. Um, and then our two biggest influences, uh, the Defusky Island Rum Company, which is uh, on a little island off the coast of Hilton in South Carolina is kind of where this idea started. So my business partner had a house there and he got to know Tony Chase and, and that's kind of what sparked this first idea. And then Asheville Distilling Company, uh, Troy and Charlie Ball are who we bought our equipment from. Charlie and Troy are Charlie's still on our board. Um, they are, have been super helpful in terms of, you know, answering all of our questions at any given point. That's more like nuts and bolts business stuff, not necessarily, you know, going on the the grand distillery tour. Um, I spent some time in New York, went to a couple different places there. So really bounced around. Um, and really anytime I was traveling within that kind of year and a half when we were getting started period, it was like, where's there a distillery here that I can check out and, and try to learn as much as I can. But um, I would say maybe eight out of 10 times I'd email somebody and say, Hey, here's kind of where I am and and what I'm looking for. You know, can you answer any of these questions? And I'd get, you know, come this day at this time. And I'm happy to talk to you as much as I can. And I'm like, I feel like I'm on a award speech. There's probably 20 places I didn't name that were equally as cool to me. Uh, you know, when I was going through that process that I just, you know, don't have committed to memory, but, um, hopefully 
every now and then I, I get a chance to pay that forward. No, I hear you. And uh, some of the names you mentioned are, are ones that kind of come up over and over in, in that kind of question. So definitely Stranahan's comes up a lot, uh, especially more, I would say, in the American single wallet category, but right. just overall, that comes up sure. a lot. Um, of course, Pat and Shane, you know, um, I've, n- I've never had the opportunity to meet Shane, but I had Pat on as a guest in the 30s episodes, I want to say, something wow. like that. But we got nerdy about yeast because I, I have a biochem background before I, you know, went heretic and went to medieval studies, but, um, <laughs> and, and now I'm a fundraiser. So, uh, no, they they really do. And I've heard pretty much to a person when, especially with, especially with Pat and Shane, like if you've got a question, they will give you more answer than you could ever know what to do with, but it's great. Like they'll answer questions that you hadn't really thought of as part of your original question. So, yeah. um, they're certainly going to be kind of godfathers of the next or the current um just yeah, movement for sure. the, the current wave it feels like they have and again I, I only can really speak for myself as far as what i have experienced with them but if that is true and i assume it is then they have played a, a huge influence on a number of different distilleries and i think what you what you've seen with them and wilderness trail what they've been able to accomplish um first of all nobody deserves that more than they do but also I hope that that's a testament to you can be good to people. You can be profligate with your knowledge and your experience and you can still be very successful. So um, it's not just the, for the love of the craft uh, and you got to struggle like those guys love the craft as much as anybody else does. And they've turned it into an extremely successful business. So they should be the model. I don't know. I don't know who the model is. Uh, I'm not sure, but it should be them. (laughs) I'm voting for them. Hey, fair enough, fair enough. Hey folks, thanks for listening to another episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast. If you like what you hear, please go ahead and click that subscribe, follow, or like button. Leave a rating review on your podcast app of choice, and let me know what you want to hear. You can reach out to me through the podcast apps, or email me at david at whiskeymywedderring.com with any suggestions or ideas for new show guests. You can also support the podcast at patreon.com slash whiskeyandmywedderingring. That's whiskey with an E for as little as a dollar a month. $5 a month gets you access to bonus content, including our soon to resume under the influencer series. And $25 a month means you join the barrel share club. Each month barrel share club members get to try products sent to me for review bottles from my own collection. And sometimes bottles that I just pick up because they're fun or interesting right now, only five spots remain in the barrel share club. So grab your place today. Finally, Please follow on Instagram. You can follow me at Whiskey My Wedding Ring or at Whiskey Ring Podcast. You can follow me on Twitter at Whiskey Ring. You can follow on Facebook at Whiskey My Wedding Ring or join the Facebook group, the Whiskey Ringers group. And I hope to see you there. Cheers. Thank you for the support and see you next time.